But first, we start with the new restrictions on BC bars, pubs, and restaurants. How are bars, pubs, and restaurants going to get through this one now? Let's talk to Dave Willoughby about it now. He is the owner of Doc Willoughby's Pub in Kelowna. Hey, Dave. Hi, Mike. How are you doing? I'm doing great. It's nice to talk to you again. Thank you very much for coming on. Uh, let me ask you about these new rules on that were just announced. How is that going to impact your business? Are you shutting down? Oh, yeah, we're, we're closing. It doesn't seem to make sense for us to do takeout and patio services. It, it helps very few in our industry at this particular time of year. Yeah, do you have a patio at your place? Yeah, we have a patio. It's about 28 people, but it's north-facing, and it's quite cold out right now. So um, yeah. it, it doesn't uh, it doesn't allow us much opportunity. And, and the street-side patio program that we took advantage of last year where they closed Bernard Avenue down, that's not slated to start until July. So we're really oh. kind of stuck in the middle of nowhere. Oh, really? So in Kelowna, what, they had shut down this the street? there for just a pedestrian traffic is that what they did yeah they did that over uh the two months of summer last year and it was quite successful and allowed us to have most of our restaurant out on the street and it was really good okay if they had that in place right now do you think you'd open up your patio i would definitely consider it for sure it's i mean you'd have to have patio heaters and that sort of thing it it, it really isn't patio weather quite yet i mean it was four degrees here this morning Okay, how does this, how do you feel about this now here? I mean, like, did you see this one coming? Do you feel like you were blindsided on it, or, or were you kind of maybe well, anticipating this might happen? No, I mean, I, we were blindsided. I mean, these last-minute restrictions on the hospitality industry are really having a devastating impact on many small businesses. You know, on Monday, I received thousands of dollars of inventory only to be told that I was closing at the end of the yeah. day. It just doesn't make any sense to us. And I understand that, that we've got issues, but uh, it just doesn't, we don't seem to have any uh, warning when these things are going to happen. And I just don't think anybody's really advocating for the hospitality industry. Okay. Do you think there should be maybe some regional rules that apply across the province instead of a kind of a one size fits all? There's one rule for the entire province that maybe the restrictions could vary from region to region, like in regions where there's not as much COVID. I mean, this thing is everywhere now, but it's it, it, there's less COVID circulating in some parts of the province. Maybe they would still be allowed to operate. Do you think that does that make sense to you? Oh, for sure. I think a, yeah. a more proactive, targeted approach with regionalized restrictions would make a lot of sense. Now, you could argue that we're maybe a bit beyond that at this particular point. Maybe a, a month ago when we knew we had problems in Fraser Health and Coastal Health, that was the time to enact that. But now it looks like the whole province is going to be blanketed with these restrictions. Yeah. But I think if we stratified the province into risk zones and made it made the data transparent to the public, it would build trust in a proactive way. I, I think we could use this information to identify hot spots, and people could avoid areas that are experiencing dangerous safety levels. Right. So I know that in addition to owning Doc Willoughby's pub there, you've also got a master's degree in public health, which is kind of an interesting uh, combo. Um, do you think that you know, if, you, if they brought in regional restrictions, do you think you should be allowed to operate in Kelowna? I mean, there's a lot of COVID there, isn't there? Uh, well, we don't really know because it, uh. they only give us the data that is in our region. Our health region is like half the province, it seems. So 
So I think by allowing uh, the data to be a little bit more broken down and uh, open to the public, uh, this would allow businesses to stay open in areas that are relatively safe. And it would reward parts of the province that have done well. Each area could have a clear indicator level as to uh, what when the COVID shutdown would be triggered. And that would help to identify businesses and give us warning. Uh, right now, we have no warning as to when things are going to happen. And it doesn't make sense like a place in Invermere, you know, mom and pop restaurant, like they've got very little case count there. Why would they have oh. to shut down? It just doesn't make any sense. Okay, it was interesting to hear Horgan earlier this week uh, point the finger at young people and say, it's you young people who are partying and, and you're to blame. You're spoiling it for for the rest of us. What do you think of that? I mean, as a guy, who I'm sure you employ a lot of young people here in, in your in your pub. So these are young people who are on the front lines, essential workers, and then you got the premier kind of pointing the finger at them. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. What do you think of that? It, it is a bit disrespectful. I mean, we have a lot of young people in our industry, and, and we're yeah. all doing our part. Certainly, there's going to be people in all age categories that are breaking the rules. I mean, we've got anti-maskers that, that come in that are in their 60s oh. trying to make their make their point in our pub. I mean, there's people in all age groups that are breaking the rules. But, you know, by and large, all people are really trying to do their part. And, and yeah. uh, I just think it's irresponsible to point the finger at any one particular age group. Yeah. How do you handle that if an anti-masker comes into your place? Well, actually, a bunch of our regulars got up. They were so frustrated with these people trying to come in and storm our place after one of these demonstrations that a bunch of our regulars got up and and just told them to get out (laughs) and uh, created a a real confrontation. But uh, we ended up calling the police and and they 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 chased them around downtown. Oh, man, that is that's not cool. Uh, We saw this video this week, Dave, of this big, huge party going on in a bar near Big White. Did you see that? Yeah, I did see that. That made the rounds pretty quick on social media. Yeah. And um, I do spend time at Big White. I have a place up there. And uh, the mountain has done a really great job of trying to contain, uh, you know, the COVID uh, clusters that they've had going on up there. And it was just declared over. And uh, I just think um, that is an example of a lot of people um, that are just frustrated and are tired of being told to to do things that uh, they, they, they don't want to do anymore. Well, yeah, I guess. But on the other hand, I mean, I'm sure you wouldn't tolerate a scene like that in your place. No, it's not right? acceptable at all. And I, I, I think it's really unfortunate that that had to happen. And yeah. um, I, I don't think that's happening uh, all around. That's just yeah. one instance. And um, I, I'm pretty sure they're going to be shut down and, and fined for that kind of behavior. Hey, Dave, the last time I talked to you, the last time you were on the show here was last year during the provincial election campaign, and you caused quite a stir when you put a, a sort of an anti-NDP message on some of your receipts to your, your customers and got everybody upset, uh, and we talked about that at the time. What do you think of the performance of this, you know, as a guy who's been outspoken and critical of this government what do you think of their performance the performance of this government during this crisis well you know i had to laugh the other day when uh the big press release was announced and and adrian dix is praising premier horgan for his tremendous leadership and i'm like what leadership is he talking about he's hiding behind bonnie henry 
and really not making any tough decisions. I, I really think we need more leadership. And a good example of that would be for him to have some sort of idea as to how he's going to help the hospitality industry yeah. uh, during this crisis. I mean, we, we've, been, we've been kicked and attacked for, for uh, you know, having all these sources of COVID outbreaks in our industry. And it's really private gatherings that are the problem. It's not right. in the hospitality industry. Right. So do you think the pubs should be allowed to stay open? I mean, I'm sure you've been following the rules in your place, right? Oh, Absolutely. Yeah. And and by and large, most people have. Yeah. And I, I just feel that we're being unfairly attacked. Um, and I, I don't think the NDP government has done a good job of, of handling the hospitality industry. Sure, you know, you could argue that they gave us wholesale liquor pricing and they, they expedited patio, temporary patios and all that. That, you know, I'm sure Baldry will talk about how wonderful the NDP <laughs> government is. But but the reality is is they the leadership has really been absent when it comes to the economy, and yeah. Dr. Henry that is not her job. Her job is to save people. It's Dr. It's 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 Premier Horgan's job is to kind of get the economy going and to balance things. Right, right. Dave, thank you for coming on today. Hey, I appreciate the time. All right, welcome back to the show. And here we go now with the hype and the hoopla for another Vancouver Olympics bid. Really? Could Vancouver host the Olympics again in 2030? Of course, everyone remembers the 2010 Winter Olympic Games in Vancouver and Whistler. What should we do it again? There's talk about making a bid for the 2030 games. Brand new report out at City Hall being considered by City Council today. Talking about a possible regional bid to host the Olympic Games in 2030. Now, yesterday on the Linda Steele Show, Linda spoke to John Furlong, of course, the former head of the Vancouver Olympic Committee back in 2010. And he's gung-ho on this idea. He says, look, we already got the infrastructure. This won't cost Vancouver anything at all to do it again. Here's what he said. We're suggesting that it can be staged without new money. We have all of the facilities from 2010. Um, you know, so the idea that we put forward a year ago was that we could actually stage the first fully sustainable Olympics ever, that we could actually deliver what we did in 2010 without any investment in, for capital in government. All of the operations of the Games would be covered by the private sector. So back in 2010, the debate was all around cost and risk and so on. But we're not asking those questions. And what we're really saying is, why don't we put the Olympics at the disposal of the community to help the community sort of recover Okay, John Furlong, the former head of the 2010 Vancouver Olympic Games, saying let's do it again in 2030. It won't cost anything. We've already got the infrastructure in place. Basically, the games will be free, covered by the private sector. All right, let's talk about it now with my guest, Stuart Parker. Very pleased to welcome him back to the show. He's the former leader of the B.C. Green Party. He's now the president of the Los Altos Institute which is a socialist think tank, and I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Stuart, thanks a lot for coming on. It's great to be back, Mike. Okay, Stuart, I remember talking to you about the 2010 Olympics, and you were a big critic of it back then, and I know you're still critical of the idea. Can you, um, you've got an interesting background on this, because you had some family members who were actually Olympic athletes, right? Yeah, so my uncle, Harry Jerome, of course, Canadian Olympian three times. My mother, Valerie Jerome, Canadian Olympian in 1960, pulled out of the 68 Olympics. 
my father narrowly missed qualifying for the 68 Olympics and the decathlon. And then my great granddad ran way back in the 1912 and 1920 Olympics. So wow. um, I'm from a family that has benefited from the Olympic movement. There's no question about that, that amateur sport helped to um, lift uh, my ancestors who are descended from slaves out of poverty so i don't i'm not opposed to all olympics everywhere all the time i think that my perspective though is olympics are about um for my family they solve the problem Mm -hmm. and in many communities people choose to make olympic bids choose to bid on the olympics because they have a specific problem to solve and so examples of that are you've got a sluggish housing market or you lack infrastructure. You don't have enough winter tourism and want to attract more and make the world more aware of you. You lack a global profile in winter sports. And none of those are problems Vancouver has. Vancouver has a very different set of problems that another Olympics is not going to address. Problems like an overheated housing market, problems like um, a changing climate that is making business at Whistler, Grouse, Cypress, Seymour, all less reliable and less stable. So I think that, um, you know, I think it's great when communities get together to solve a problem together. But what I never hear from Mr. Furlong or other proponents of a new Olympic bid is, what's the thing we're fixing here? What's the thing we're improving here? Sure, it might be possible to do it, Mm -hmm. but you don't do things just because you can. Well, I guess one of the primary arguments in favor of it is that right now we're going through a devastating pandemic. We've taken a real economic hit particularly hard hit tourism industries arts and culture and big events and these are sectors of our economy that would get a real shot in the arm uh with another olympics uh another olympic games i mean that's one of the primary arguments i I think that if we were talking about a 2022 olympics i could sort of see that but we're talking about 2030 and hopefully travel will be opened back up. Hopefully we'll have functioning vaccines in the population. And the fact that people couldn't come here for two years doesn't mean that they will forget that BC is one of the most beautiful places on earth, that they're going to forget this is a place they have opportunities to travel to. I don't know about you, but one of the things that's happened to me throughout the whole COVID epidemic is friends of mine from other parts of the world saying, wow, this has really realigned my thinking. I am going to come visit you and visit my other friends because we might not be always be able to visit people in this new post-COVID world. So what I see is all through my interpersonal network, a pent-up demand to come to BC that's already increasing. I think the big problems we're going to have to solve after COVID is the giant hole we've blown in the province's finances and our nation's finances. And I don't have a problem, you know, with that spending, but we're going to be laboring under, we're going to be paying way more in interest on our debt because our debt has ballooned. And the single biggest problem we were left with from the last Olympics 
was that during Gordon Campbell's premiership, the provincial debt increased by $24 billion. And economists disagree about how much of that was the Olympics, but the lowest, the lowest estimate is that 30% of that debt was Olympic-generated. Well, well, of course, the, the backers and supporters of the Olympics would argue that the Olympics actually had a balanced budget in 2010 as an operating budget, but, of course, there was a lot of infrastructure spending that was done off-budget, off-the-books, you know, huge projects like the Convention Center and the Sea to Sky Highway. So you could certainly... And a, and a lot of employee furloughs right of government yeah. employees being given time off we're still right. paying their wages so that they can be volunteers. and that was not was that counted so vancouver ain't edmonton and was that counted as an olympic expense uh in many estimates it is it, it, in some estimates it is okay in the we balance the budget estimate it's not interesting All okay let me those let me ask you about this, Stuart. We just played a clip here, John Furlong, the former head of the 2010 Winter Olympics, who's gung-ho on doing it again. And you heard the clip that he we just played there in, his, in conversation with Linda Steele, where he made the argument that, look, these games would essentially be free. We don't have to start from scratch. We've got all the existing infrastructure. It's already been built. He said the private sector would get on board. Are you buying that, that we could stage um, something I like this? See, I mean, we used up our Olympic village. We had an Olympic mm. village. We spent a lot of money on it. We were told it would more than break even. Instead, we took a bath on it. But all that housing's now sold. Oh, yeah. It's not like we're going to kick out all the people living between Canby and Maine uh, below Great Northern Way and go, okay, we need your suite for uh, an athlete again. We would yeah, have we'd to, have to build a new Olympic a village. New yeah. Olympic village in, yeah. in an overheated housing market. Okay. So, yeah. Let me let me ask you that. Do you think there are more pressing priorities? Because this is the the constant argument we hear as well. We got a housing crisis. We got a homeless crisis. We got a drug overdose crisis. I mean, just the list goes on. And we should be focusing on those problems instead of taking on another Olympic Games. Now, let me play this here for you, Stuart. This is John Furlong once again in conversation with Linda, and she asked him that precise question. I mean, don't we got bigger fish to fry here? Here's what he said. Maybe the games of 2030 could be used as a catalyst to get attention on some of these things. For example, we know that social housing is a big issue. Maybe the games of 2010 can inspire uh, big governments to come together and help do something about that. Maybe they can help inspire improvements to some of our transportation. Maybe they can help with some of the issues around drugs and homelessness, etc. Okay, what do you think of that, Stuart? Well, I think we're already pretty inspired. Um, I don't think we're going to get more inspired about the opioid crisis, and I don't think we should be inviting the world here to come and check out our opioid crisis. That's stated. That's not my favorite argument against the games. I don't like arguments that say the government can't walk and chew gum at the same time. Obviously, we can work on sports and other things at the same time, and i got no problem with that kind of approach. But the reality is that um, British Columbians already know these things are urgent. What we need are resources allocated to them, not more awareness raising. People are far too aware of the fact that we're one of the highest income cities that's still got a ongoing tuberculosis problems in a neighborhood or um, really high rates of HIV infection in that neighborhood. I think, um, you know, 
we should i think we've already got enough inspiration to address that all right talking about another olympic bid for vancouver should we do this and go for it again 2030 would be the olympic games should we do a regional bid for the olympics in bc my guest is Stuart parker let's go to your phone calls we got lots of them joel on the line in kamloops hey joel hi there how's it going it's good go ahead thank you uh I was honestly just thinking that I think it would be a, an unwise decision. Now, in the last Olympic Games, I understand that we got a lot of funding from the federal government, and it, not all of it came out of uh, the city of Vancouver's budget or whatever the case may be in that sense. But I think in the current opioid crisis that is you know, going down on East Hastings Street in downtown Vancouver right now, and all across BC, really, the money should really be kept local and diverted to those necessary services rather than i mean you know, i'm all for sports but rather than you know spending the money trying to host another olympic games that like you said earlier in the show we took a bath on in the last time it's um well, i think we need to reassess our priorities well i'm not sure we did take a bath on it i mean Stuart parker for your thoughts i mean we we talked we touched earlier a bit on the sort of the fun with numbers on on the budget but if you talk to the olympic officials they'll say this thing actually came in under budget uh what do you think about that well, you know, I think um, you would expect like this is a this is a, this was a, a center right government that did this. They had a lot of private sector started uh, by the NDP, though. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. But uh, frankly, uh, sometimes the NDP can run a center right government. Uh, you know, my thoughts on that. But the point is that even the business community look at took a look at this and went. We took a bath here. Independent analysis by PricewaterhouseCoopers says a minimum of $7 billion in debt was created. And I don't think PricewaterhouseCoopers, they're not the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives or anything. They're, they're a, a pretty mainstream capitalist. Well, well hang on. It wasn't that seven? The government said. Well, wasn't that, that $7 billion? Hang on, Stuart. Wasn't that $7 yeah. billion bucks, though, spent on things like the Convention Center and the Canada Line and the Sea to Sky Highway? Yeah, some of it so was. was that some debt? of it was giving government employees time off work. Some of it was the Olympic Village. Some of it was all kinds of stuff. But, um, you know, if we want to buy those things, we should just buy the transportation infrastructure we need. We shouldn't have to, like, filter it through um, a process that fills up the pockets of the International Olympic Committee. Okay, okay, let's, they let's walk keep taking. With cash every bid. Let's keep taking calls here. Ron on the line in Surrey. Hi, Ron. Go ahead. Yeah, hi. I couldn't agree more with the fellow that you've got on there as your guest. I don't, I don't understand why anybody would want to promote another Olympics when I don't believe we know the true cost. I think there was a more, the moratorium has not been lifted on. Okay. Okay. You sound like you're talking from the International Space Center there, but. Uh, well, he makes I don't, a good go point ahead. there um, about uh, the fact that this was some place outside the scope of the Auditor General. And so when we say the government said this, we're not talking about the official part of the government that tells us how much things cost. We're talking about a political part of the government that says that we broke even. So the Auditor General mm-hmm. has never evaluated these books and pronounced one way or another whether the government told the truth okay let's go to greg on the line in north van hey greg hey okay so we could take this use this as a great opportunity if we build the if we build the olympic um villages in strategic places 
like Richmond, Burnaby, Vancouver, all over the place. Uh, we can take the housing at the end of the Olympics and use it for for um, the so, social people. housing. Yeah, I hear you. Greg, thank you for the call. Uh, Stuart? Well, that was the pitch that was made last time. And, of course, we know that uh, one of the ways that we had to bail out the Olympic Village was that so much of the housing that was supposed to turn into social housing after the Games had to be sold at a profit to fish us out of uh, our financial problems. But that stated, imagine if the government went out and built housing in in places that needed it where the market wasn't already superheated. I mean, you look at a town like Valmont, where, you know, the big problem is there's a lack of housing in town. If this were, you know, a Jasper Valmont Olympic bid, I might have a different opinion about it. But we in the Lower Mainland, you're already building housing as fast as you can. The government getting in there is just going to poach building trades professionals who are working in the private sector and move them to the public. All right. Stuart, it was great to have you on the show again. Thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it a lot. My pleasure, Mike. Anytime. All right. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the COVID case numbers surging in British Columbia and Premier John Horgan pointing a finger this week at young people. Shame them and blame them. It's young people who are responsible for driving these numbers up. Uh, spoiling it for everybody else. Let's play a couple of clips here for you. Here is John Horgan calling out some young people here. It's a cohort from 20 to 39 are not paying as much attention to these broadcasts and, quite frankly, are putting the rest of us in a challenging situation. Okay, and here he is uh, really pointing the finger at younger people. Do not blow this for the rest of us. Do not blow this for your parents and your neighbors and others who have been working really, really hard, making significant sacrifices so we can get good outcomes for everybody. Okay, now I've heard back feedback on this one on both sides of it. Heard from a lot of young people in the last couple of days who are very angry about those comments from the Premier. And I've also heard from a lot of people saying, he's right, he's right. Take a look at that viral video from the Big White Ski Resort that went viral yesterday with people partying in that bar, young people dancing on the table. This is what Horgan is talking about. Okay, let's talk about it now. we got a great panel assembled for you. Adam Bremner Akins is on the line. He is a former candidate for the BC Green Party, uh, outspoken on this one on Twitter and a viral thread on Twitter yesterday. Hi, Adam. Hi, Mike. How you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for coming on. Also on the line is Mo Sahota, the former NDP cabinet minister, former broadcaster. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Mo, thanks a lot for coming on. No problem, Mike. Glad okay, to be on. appreciate both of you being here. Adam, let me go to you first. You're a young guy. What did you think when you heard the premier say those words? Yeah, I got to be honest. When I first, well, I was sitting. Actually, ironically enough, I was sitting watching the broadcast like I do almost every day, um, <laughs> and I was pretty upset when I heard that. Young people have been on the front lines of the pandemic, working frontline jobs like retail and restaurants, um, putting ourselves out there, you know, just making sure the province can go by already under tough conditions just due to the economic climate um, and other you know, problems like mental health and climate change. Um, and I thought when I heard that, well, you know, there's some bad apples, definitely like the big white ski resort. But wow. when there are groups of anti-mask protests, we don't classify them by age. And they don't even, you know, I mean, this seems to be a bigger takedown of younger people than Horgan has gone after anti-maskers. You know, okay, okay. The, yeah. Mo Sahota, your thoughts? 
Well, look, uh, the Premier's comments are understandable given the environment, Mike, that we find ourselves in. This UK variant is scary. I mean, let's not forget, yeah. uh, a few months ago, we saw how it just ravaged um, uh, Britain, and we've learned a lot from that. And that learning is understandably created anxiety within government um, and, and around the spread that we're witnessing. And for those who've watched John uh, over, the, over the last year or so, they know that on many times he said that he appreciates how much British Columbians are following the rules, and, and that clearly applies to young people too. But there are a small number of young people that aren't following the rules. So the video from Big White that you alluded to is, is an example of that. The videos that we've seen about the penthouse suite on, on, uh, on Richards is an example of that. Now, which one of us in life uh, hasn't used stronger language than perhaps may be required in, uh, in a moment? And frankly, you know, we've got bigger issues that are before us. Everybody here needs to hunker down and follow the rules and let the vaccination roll out because right now the vaccination is losing the race against the virus and the virus is winning. So let's call a spade a spade that for some perverse reason, the Liberals and the Greens see the uh, Premier's comments as a, a political opening to take a shot at the guy who the poll show is one of the most popular Premiers in, in the country. Well, I'd expect that, Mike, from the Liberals. But the Greens promise to do politics differently, and they're descending to that same low. The well, fact of the matter is, and I'll end on uh, this point, yeah. Horgan and Dix and Dr. Henry have done a great job in navigating B.C. through these difficult times. We've uh, struck the right balance in terms of trying to protect people's mental health and deal with issues of fatigue, for example, through the outdoor uh, gathering rules. We've done a good job of keeping our economy going for 10 months in a row. We've uh, seen jobs increase in British Columbia. Okay. We're doing our best to prevent people from tripping before we get to the finish line. Okay, but it's not just members of the Liberal or Green parties that are criticizing Horgan over this. I mean, I had an NDP candidate on the show yesterday. In fact, he was the youngest candidate for the NDP in the last election. He was just as angry as, as these other young people and called on Horgan to apologize. And so let me go to Adam Bremner Aikens again. Adam, do you think the premier should apologize for what he said? Oh, I, I definitely think he should apologize. He made a wrong statement. He then refused to apologize and then came out uh, yesterday with a tweet sort of appreciating young people. I think that was his goal. Um, an apology is, I think, what's needed here. You know, I mean, if we're talking about case counts, we knew mid-February our average case counts began to go up. He should have put the restrictions in then. That would have been the responsible thing to do. Get it early, and we could have had it done. But he didn't. And he, we all, everybody sat back, and now our cases are double per day what they were back in February, only uh, you know, a month ago. So I think Horgan has a lot of responsibility for this one on his back. It's not just young people. Um, he sh he, you know, he, that's his job, to lead the province to protect the people of British Columbia. And he failed to do that this well, time. Well, it's his job to make sure that it's his job to make sure the decisions are made not on the basis of politics, but made on the basis of science. And we've taken yes, the guidance of Dr. Henry, who has been exemplary. Hang on, hang on, Adam. Hang on. Just, no, hang on. Just hang on, Adam. We make decisions based on science, not politics. He's followed the advice of Dr. Henry in terms of when to move, um, in terms of dealing with the various restrictions that, uh, that, have, that have been brought in over the course of time or relaxed over the, the course of time. They're trying to make prudent, sensible decisions based on medicine and science and evidence and not otherwise. And you're asking for otherwise, and that's wrong. Okay, we Adam. don't want to be Trump-like and engage in politics. Ooh. We want to be thoughtful and engage in scientific decisions. Okay, Adam, go ahead. Yeah, 
I, I think it's ironic to call places like New Zealand and Australia Trump-like. You know, we, we watched Australia. They had a peak of cases, and then they put a strict lockdown in. They have almost no cases now. I think they have reported four new cases and went into a lockdown. Uh, and if John Horgan followed that science, which clearly shows it protects more people than the way we're doing it now, we would have less deaths, we would have less cases in our province, and people would be able to, you know, we'd be able to reopen businesses faster, getting people back into work, back into the, uh, you know, back to the economy being better. But we didn't follow that science. And that is proven science. That has worked in New Zealand, it has worked in Australia. And well, you may say, oh, you know, we don't have, we're not an island, or we're not, you know, Australia, which is a continent. Well, we don't need to be a continent or an island. We can still take the same okay. approach and lower our cases drastically. Okay, Mo Sahoda, you mentioned that the premier is following the science, and here he is pointing a finger at young people. The caseload is disproportionately high for young people. That's true, but it's been like that since the start of this whole thing a, a year ago. And John Horgan is a guy who called an unnecessary election in the middle of this pandemic. It was nothing but a pure power grab. So how can the guy, guy's got enough nerve to do that, then have even more nerve to turn around and then point the finger at young people? He maybe should point the finger at himself. Look, Mike, um, you're right. 28% of the population is sort of in that category of 20 to 39 years of age. The case yeah. counts in, uh, in that category at 40, are at 42% as of this March. So over the measure of time, the Premier has been using increasingly escalating language to be able to speak to British Columbians about the imperative to make sure that, that, that we don't trip before we get to the, uh, to the finish line. Now, so, so I, don't, I don't blame him for anything in that, in, in, in the, in that context that he's saying. With regards to the election, he made his call. He took yeah. his criticism from you and the Liberals and the Greens and everybody else. But at the end of the day, the public deserved, a, uh, sorry, delivered a verdict. They gave him a yeah. mandate to proceed, and he's proceeding thoughtfully and in a measured way. And, and, and to your point around, the, and Adam's point with regards to the economy, yeah. look, one of the things that he's got to balance through is to make sure our economy keeps on uh, growing. No other province in this country has seen employment grow month to month, 10 consecutive months in a row, while at the same time, I think it's a given that the rest of the country has applauded and at times even marveled at the way in which Dr. Henry has been adept in managing the, um, uh, the, the health environment that we find ourselves in, well, while at the same time keeping this province going. Well, at the same time, though, I got a province that just shut down bars, pubs, and restaurants in the Whistler Ski Resort, disproportionately putting young people out of work. Because we have asked young people to go on the front lines as frontline workers during this pandemic at great risk to their health. And for then the premier to turn around and point a finger at them, I can sort of understand why a lot of young people are not happy about that. So, Adam, let me go back to you, because I think you've made some very eloquent points in this regard. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, the burden that young people have faced during this pandemic and then to be called out like this? Yeah, I, I think it is. It is a good point. You know, young people are on those front lines jobs, retail stores, your malls, the grocery stores. We're all employed there. You know, a, a friend who works at a bowling alley that's been open for most of the pandemic. You know, so we're working on the front lines, meeting different people, people we don't know. We're not in bubbles. We don't know. And, you know, masks and plexi shields only go so far after seeing a thousand people every month. You can only, you know, so we're at higher risks for getting cases. And that's yeah. one of the reasons we're seeing this increase in young people is because we're the people on the front lines 
along with, you know, uh, there are other people in other age groups, especially doctors and nurses, but we're out there. We're doing some of the hardest jobs and most dangerous jobs in the okay. province. Okay, Mo Sahoda, we just got a few minutes left here. Should the Premier apologize, Mo? No, and as I said, I think most reasonably minded people in society know that all of us in our life have sometimes used stronger language than is required, but it does make the point. And in this case, uh, the imperative being of, of requiring us to speak out to all of us in society to hunker down and deal with this before this variant spreads to the point where we have a, a greater problem and and make it even harder for us to get to the finish line. I think it's perfectly warranted for the premier to stand up and, and make a point. I just think it's it's sort of perverse politics for the opposition to kind of you know, sort of log, sort of log on to this point and um, and try to find a, a basis to criticize the premier who, on balance, has done an exceptional job of guiding this province uh, through this uh, unprecedented okay. time. So let's. Let's just be honest and let's have some context here. The guy's done a good job. All right, welcome back as we continue talking about Premier John Horgan calling out young people for the surge in the COVID case count in B.C. You just heard our debate on that. Adam Bremner-Akins, he's calling on the Premier to apologize. Mo Sahota, the former NDP cabinet minister, backing up Horgan on this one. He says, look, Horgan's just calling it like it is. And he should apologize for nothing. Let's go to your phone calls on this one. Kathy in Delta. Hi, Kathy. Hi there. Hi. Um, I just wanted to say I don't think Corrigan, when he's talking like this, is referring to all young people. He's only talking to the people that aren't following the rules. And you're saying Horgan's calling out um, all young people, but he's not. It's so it's he doesn't have to apologize. People that are following the rules... Uh, you know, they're sucking it up and doing the right thing, but he called, he's talking to the people that aren't following thank, the rules. Thank you, thank you, Kathy. He called out people yesterday specifically between the ages of 20 and 40. That's who he called out, which is a huge segment of the population. He did not specify, I'm talking specifically about the small number of bad apples who were breaking the rules. He was talking about young people blowing it for everybody else and i think that's why people were upset cal in new west hey cal hey how's it going mike um Good. so yeah a little a little angry with the whole speech i was just uh just want to say like i have a little trucking business and uh at the beginning of this hype i have two employees one's 42 and one's 48 and uh they both stayed home and didn't want to come because we ended up picking up contracts delivering to senior homes medical goods and whatnot i ended up finding a a young 22-year-old that was willing to come and risk going into senior homes, and he actually got COVID from entering Lynn Valley, and this was back wow. in April. And, you know, he came back to work after he, two months passed, he came back, and the other guys are still staying at home. And, you know, no one else would take these contracts to deliver these senior homes. Like, no one. They were so desperate to find drivers. And I'm asthma. Like, I, I, I'm severe. I have severe asthma, and I still, every single day, we never took a break. And we just went and worked. No one else. They were, they, were, they were so desperate to find drivers. And it just kind of pissed me off a little bit, man. It's just, I don't know. <laughs> so you were not so, you were not happy with Horgan? No, not at all, yeah, man. Yeah. Like, maybe is this, is my, the, the worker I got who's 22 who got COVID, what, is he a statistic that he's talking about? Because he, he was went to the Lynn Valley and 
and got the got Corona from that. Like, right? But he was so I don't know, man. It's just a little little pisses me off. But yeah, that's all I want to say. Okay, Cal. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I mean, young people are disproportionately on the front lines here, uh, putting their health on the line for everybody else. I think that's a really good story you just shared there. Chris in Abbotsford. Hey, Chris. Hey, how you doing? I'm good. Yeah, I just want to talk for a second about the hypocrisy for John Horgan there, you know, saying that he doesn't apologize because he wants to get the message out. And yeah. at the same time, you know, he, they're down to two press conferences a week, and we don't get any numbers on the weekends. You know, we're coming into Good Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. Are we getting an update on those days so he can get the message out? No, that's a really good point. Thank you, Chris. There was an earlier caller who raised a similar point, saying, like, look, if you're if the idea is to get the message out to young people, show me how the government is doing that. Beyond Horgan kind of pointing a finger and shaming and blaming them, where is the TikTok ad campaign? Where is the Instagram campaign directly targeting young people? Really haven't seen a good job on that. Cam in Vancouver. Hey, Cam. Hey, Mike. Well, you know, on your call, Mo Sohoda admitted it three times that John Horgan used stronger language than required. So that's a political mistake. You know, maybe it would have been nicer to hear it coming from mommy instead of daddy. Could have gotten Bonnie Henry to (laughs) talk to the students instead of him being the commander like that. Now he had to get Mo Sahoda, call him for backup, you know, to kind of back him up and get him out of this mess. It's just political communication. You've got to know how to communicate to the kids. Yeah, we haven't seen, thank you for that, Cam, and we've seen Horgan do this before. He's got a little bit of foot in mouth disease and we've seen several times here now when other cabinet ministers and officials have got to ride to the rescue i mean how many times have we heard adrian dix the health minister say well what the premier meant to say this was not the first time that we've seen horgan a step in it here and uh, make some mistakes but like i pointed out earlier on the show this was not like it was a off-the-cuff remark that he blurted out this was in his prepared comments at the start of that news conference this is exactly what he wanted to say and we'll see if it's had the desired effect all right welcome back to the show let's talk a little provincial politics here now the bc liberal party has another leadership hopeful now gavin dew is the latest candidate to replace andrew wilkinson as the bc liberal leader gavin is a vancouver entrepreneur a former bc liberal election candidate he just announced his leadership vid i'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show gavin thanks a lot for coming on Thanks for having me on, Mike. I was just uh, air drumming to Rush as you were getting started there, so I was disappointed when the song cut out. Oh, yeah. Well, we got some Canadian content here, you know, for our theme songs, for sure. So, (laughs) Gavin, thanks a lot for doing this. It's very interesting that you're running for the the Liberal leadership. A a lot of the listeners may remember you as as a former Liberal Party candidate. Which riding did you run in last time there? That's right, Mike. I ran in Vancouver, Mount Pleasant, which is the safest NDP riding in the province. Yeah, right. Okay, so you're a bit of a sacrificial lamb there for sure. Let's talk about your liberal leadership bid here. What do you want, what do you want people to know about you? What's the main message you want to get out there? You bet, Mike. So for me, this is 100% all about family. I'm a father of two, just had another uh, son born four months ago. So for nice. me, this is really about the future I want for my kids. And it's about trying to shift the focus of the BC Liberal Party 
to talk more about people and families and to make sure that we're really authentically renewing our party and earning back the trust of British Columbians. Right. What do you think went wrong in that regard the last time? Like, you know, running for your campaign in Mount Pleasant, that's a pretty steep hill to climb. I'm not sure the Liberals have ever won that won that seat. Like you said, safest NDP seat. But man, oh man, the Liberals just took a shellacking in that last election. What went wrong? You know what? I think that uh, obviously it was, uh, it was a pandemic snap election. There was a bit of opportunism uh, from the NDP. But I don't think that we Liberals can let ourselves off the hook. I think that the voters gave us a very clear mandate in 2017 to go away and retool, to go away and renew, refresh, get some new ideas, all of those things. And I think we really just unfortunately didn't do enough of that. So now, hopefully, the message has been received loud and clear, and we're going into a leadership, which is an opportunity for us to really renew and modernize the party. Right. Politics is strange these days in the pandemic. I think a lot of people are looking to government to help them through uh, this crisis. It it seems like the old values in politics or a lot of them have been forgotten, like things like balanced budgets or trying to keep a rein on on spending. All of that seems to have gone out out the window. Do you have any concerns on that? Like as a as a business guy, when you look at the amount of debt that's piling up here, is that a concern for you? I mean, I definitely have long-term concerns about fiscal management and responsibility. I do think that uh, we need to be doing what needs to be done in order to support people and families through the pandemic. But as we move from pandemic response into recovery, I think we need to make sure that we're finding the right way to rebuild our economy and to recognize that we can actually deliver a lot more for people when it comes to affordability, when it comes to housing, when it comes to things like childcare, where there's a real crisis. We can do a lot more if we get better at getting to yes than we can by just driving around dumping money out the back of a truck, Mike. Okay, you're a young guy. You mentioned that you've got a young family there. Congratulations on, on another child there. Um, how old are you? You're, in your 30s, are I'm, thir- you? I'm 37. 37, Thir- 37. and my kids are uh, two and four months. Okay, I think that's great. You were So you were in that age cohort that Premier John Horgan this week called out for being responsible for the surging COVID case count we've got here. He called out people between 20 and 40. That's you and other people in that same age cohort. What did you think of that? Because we just had a debate on that about whether Horgan should walk that back or apologize. What did you think of it? Well, I think he's already been trying to walk it back and spin it somewhat unsuccessfully. I think it was a real kind of breaking of the trust with, with a generation. Obviously, there are people who are being responsible and people who are being irresponsible of all ages. But I think he failed to acknowledge just how much that cohort has already been sacrificing and struggling through, through COVID. These are the folks that are working frontline jobs. They're typically living in more crowded housing. They're taking transit to work. They've got a much higher level of risk and exposure just doing what they're supposed to be doing. So I think a lot of people were really hurt and offended. And I think that's going to definitely uh, have an impact in the long run. And I'd say, to be honest, it really opens up a window for someone like me, uh, who is someone who is younger, but who also uh, respects young people and not just during elections. Well, does he also, though, have a point that when you take a look at the case count 
on an age basis, younger people are disproportionately higher uh, among people who are getting COVID in this province. And, and I think it's quite clear that some people are not following the rules. I mean, we just got this viral video just yesterday of this packed bar at the Big White Ski Resort. This bar just full of young people just partying, dancing on tables. It was just outrageous. And a lot of people are looking at that and saying, this is what Horgan's talking about. He's right. I, I don't think it's appropriate for the premier to conflate young people with idiots who are breaking the rules because those are two different things. There are idiots of all ages, and there are smart, responsible people of all ages who are doing the right thing. And I really do think that his remarks were inappropriate, and I think he should actually issue a proper apology, not just try to spin it away. Okay, speaking to Gavin Dew, he is running for the B.C. Liberal leadership. Let's go back to the the situation the, the party finds itself in. I mean, here you've got a party that was effectively a dynasty in the province, an iron grip on power, it seemed like, for 16 years, and then it all went down the tubes here in, in this last election. Do you think that this party in any way, like speaking of young people, and you know, you're part of a younger generation, you're trying to speak for them, did this party lose touch with them in some way? I think that there was a loss of connection with young people and, and a failure to bring in the next generation of voters, but I think that there was also a drifting away of the long-term grassroots that had been there for a long time. So the task ahead is not just to bring in the next generation, it's also to reconnect more broadly with the grassroots and give them the opportunity to feel a sense of ownership of their party. Right. Taking a look at your uh, your CV here, Gavin, online, I'm taking a look at your, you know, your very impressive business credentials, and, and you had worked in the past on the Trans Mountain Pipeline Project Right. I mean, a controvers- yeah. controversial project in our in our province it had been a, a real wedge issue, I think, between the NDP and the liberals. What would you say in defense of that project for people listening who are opposed to it? A couple of things. Firstly, I think it's a project of national importance. The reality is without access to markets, uh, we're giving away tens of millions of dollars every day, subsidizing the American economy instead of spending that money on things we want here like lifting boil water advisories on reserves or investing in clean tech or building supportive housing. You know, if we're, if we're giving that money away to, uh, to other places that are buying our resource endowment on the cheap, that's not serving Canadians or British Columbians. Uh, I would also just mention my work on that project was focused on uh, working with local communities to make sure that if the project was going through their communities, there were going to be local jobs, there were going to be opportunities for local businesses, and we were making sure that local people benefit. So I'm very proud of that work. Okay, Gavin, last question for you. You're the second declared candidate for the leadership of the B.C. Liberal Party. You joined Ellis Ross, uh, Liberal MLA, throwing your hat in the ring for this, for this job. I mean, th- this is a leadership contest that's kind of flying under the radar, maybe to be kind. It doesn't seem to be getting a whole lot of excitement or attention right now. Uh, one other guy that is mulling a leadership bid is a guy named Aaron Gunn. I'm sure you're familiar with him, who's a kind of a conservative commentator on Facebook. He's got millions of video views, but a lot of people think he's he's too extremist and should not be allowed to run. What do you think of that guy? Should he be? Should the Liberal Party let him run? Uh, I think we have to be defenders of, speech, of free speech. I, there, there's things that I don't agree with Aaron about uh, what he said or the way he said them. 
But yeah. uh, I don't think that you should be uh, shutting people down. I, I do think if we get this leadership right, it's going to be an opportunity for us to showcase the breadth and, and depth of the party. There's a lot of really interesting people who are looking at putting their names forward. And I think that if we're successful, it'll be a really constructive process where we're putting forward new ideas. We're demonstrating that we've gotten the message from the voters that it's time to change. It's time to move forward. It's time for new energy, new ideas, new leadership. So that's what I'm focused on is just making sure that I'm working you know, collaboratively with all of the other people who are in the race or likely to be in the race. Okay, following your campaign closely. Thanks a lot for coming on today. Thank you very much for having me.